for air conditioners so uh, we uh, sweated our share for the three weeks we were gone but uh, we enjoyed a cool weather Layton and Kristen uh, I was blessed by what you said this morning it's been the best year of your life and I would just say you're on a good path and I was I was thrilled to hear that the first year of marriage was the best year of his life and I think if you keep that in your sights, why it's going to be a good journey for you, regardless of the tough things. All right, I want all the children, let's go with 12 years old and between 7 and 12 years old. I want you to stand up. 7 and 12 years old. All right. Got a trivia question for you, okay? All right. How many bones are there in your body? How many separate bones are there in your body? Okay. Who said that? Well, that's a pretty good guess. Wow. How did you know that? You read it. You learned it at school. You're close. It's not, according to what I read, it's not quite accurate. But it's really, really close. Who wants to guess again? One more time. No? That's too many. I'm told there's 206 bones in your body. How many bones are there between your two hands and your wrists? Who wants to guess? Wow, you guys are smart. You're smarter than I am. This is really close. I'm told 54. Can you imagine 54 bones in your hands and in your wrists? Now, this has nothing to do with the message, okay? I just want you to know how carefully and intricately you are created. Isn't that amazing? All right, you may sit down. There's one more question. There's one bone that is not connected to another bone. What is that? Where is it? Now I'm smarter than you found that out. Okay. One bone that's not connected to, your, to, the, to any other bone. It's the bone that your tongue connects to. Okay. I'm told that's the only bone that's not connected to another part of, or to another bone in your body. I just, uh, I enjoy reading things of biology and just, how intricately we are created. Uh, one of the things I did with the class is just talking about how God designs babies and how, how babies are, are created. And it's, it's, a, it's an incredible, incredible design from God. It's, am it's amazing. All right. Well, this morning, I would like to talk about something and I've just entitled it Biblical Financial Principles, and the subtitle is simply the question, what does Scripture have to say about debt? Now, there's a reason I'm talking about this, uh, two reasons probably. One is because I think it's necessary uh, that uh, we talk about it. Maybe it's something that we don't talk a lot about, and um, 
the, the scripture is full of instruction, I'm told, now I haven't sat down and actually counted, but I, I, I've been told before that two-thirds of, of the parables that Jesus taught revolve around or, or involve finances to one degree or another. And so obviously it's something that was very important to Jesus. And, uh, and, and then the other reason was because while we were in at IGO, the, uh, the one uh, week uh, I was asked, along with two other teachers, to sit on a panel discussion. And the, uh, and, uh, the, the students came up with the questions. So they gave us some questions ahead of time, and uh, we were supposed to make a response to it. And uh, one of the questions we're going we're gonna to wrestle with today, and that's what we talked about at that point. There's several questions that are often asked about finances, and um, there's, there's the question that uh, people ask, should I borrow money for a car? Now, I, I, I struggled a little bit this morning about, about teaching on finances, and yet at the same time, I think, for us to understand of where society is at today and maybe what becomes or what is seemingly common to us, maybe God has something to say about that. Well, that's what we want to look at today. Should I borrow for money for a car or what about a house? Is it, is it okay for that? Uh, some people ask the question, should we tithe? Does, does a Christian tithe? Should a Christian tithe? Is this something that God requires from us today? Good question. Is this something that God requires from us today? What's the difference between saving wisely and storing up unwisely or hoarding? When is enough enough? Uh, is this what Jesus was addressing to the rich young ruler when he instructed him to go sell all that you have and come follow me? How do you reconcile saving up for retirement and explaining Jesus' instruction to us to not be concerned about the things of tomorrow? That's a good question. I've wrestled with that. I don't know if you have or not. How do I make that difference? Should I co-sign or lend money to a brother in the church or to another individual? That sometimes comes up. The question comes up. But here's the question that was asked and the one that we were supposed to make a response to. Is it wrong or sin to borrow money? Now I'll lay a foundation first before we really talk about that question. And the foundation that I want to lay about this is related to a couple statistics that are prevalent in our society today. One of the things that is said is that 30%, 37% of individuals uh, of marital problems derive from financial situations. A recent report finds that the conflict over money is still the leading cause for divorce today. So if that's the case, then I think it would do well for us to just sort of sit up and take notice and maybe talk about some of this stuff that, that puts pressure on our marriages. 
70% of all consumers live paycheck to paycheck, meaning they run out of money before the end of the month. That's from Wall Street Journal. 70%. I don't know if you know this or not, or if you're aware of this, or have heard this or not, but most of Americans live above 95% of the world population, their means of living. You are in a you are in a 5% bracket of the population of the world in how you live. And you may think that you have it bad, but we probably don't have a clue. And yet, we're saying 70% live from paycheck to paycheck from one month to the next. Only 30% of Americans would be able to cover a $5,000 emergency with cash without going into debt for it. 30% of people. And this is in the States, of course, in the United States. The average family would have to use a credit card to pay an $1,800 unexpected expense. The average family. So 50% or more uh, would not be able to carry a $1,500 expense. The typical household has $38,000 in debt, and the total consumer debt has almost tripled since 1980. In the 80s, the local consumer debt was $1.3 uh, trillion, and now is near or above $3 trillion. And I think that's something for us to sort of sit up and take note about. The national debt, last week, the national debt surpassed $18 trillion. That's equal to 124000 for each American household or 86000 per individual. Can you wrap your mind around that? Let's put that in perspective. <coughs> It took the country 205 years to accumulate its first trillion-dollar debt. And that happened in 1981. But it's only taken 403 days for the last trillion dollars to accumulate. Now, I want to ask you a question. How long and... My family can't answer this because I already asked them the question. How long, you know what, let's, uh, I'm going to ask the youth, all the youth, okay? I want you to respond. How long would it take to count to a million, from zero to a million? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. How long would it take to count from one to a million? Five years. Okay. Any other guess? I'm told one week. I've never tried it, but I'm told one week. How long would it take to count to a trillion? 
one trillion. How many? A thousand weeks. If we were to count to a million, it would take one week. If you count to a trillion, it would take 31,000 years. That's one trillion. We are in debt, $18 trillion. And that, that puts in perspective the kind of money that we're talking about. If, if we were to take, okay, so we, we, we've paid out every year. Last year, we spent $430 billion just on interest alone. And that means that every taxpayer is spending 35000 just on paying interest to our national debt. The average interest rate is 2.5. If it would go to 5%, which is still low historically, by historical standards, 5% is still low, that means that we would owe nearly $1 trillion a year in interest alone. $1 trillion. If the percent would be 5 that we're paying interest on. That is about two-thirds of what the, the federal government takes in every year in income tax. That means that we have about one-third, that would mean that we'd have about one-third left over for infrastructure, fixing up the roads, doing whatever a government needs to do to sustain itself. One-third of what's taken in. Now, I wanted to talk about this because we... I'm concerned about our youth and our children. Uh, they're growing up in an era that is unprecedented to the rest of us older people. See, I, I, w we got married in 1980, so we didn't even hit the first trillion before I was married. But since that, we've accumulated $17 trillion since the time we were married. So you are growing up in an era that, that is unprecedented in anything that we've ever seen before this in history. And so what concerns me is that for you, this is normal. And, and when I think about my grandchildren and what they will face because of this, I, I, I'm, I'm very concerned. So what do we, how do we as a church, how do we as Christian people respond to this? Well, number one, I would just say that, you know what? That is why Jesus taught that we are of another kingdom, and we have to keep that in front of us. This is not our kingdom right here. We're, we're just residing here for a time, but our, our value system is so different. It should be so different from the value system of this world. And so that's one thing I would just say, that keep that in front of you. This, the, the, the things that we see in our, in, in our government, in our world here, is not the kingdom that we are to follow. This is what we call the great American dream, or what people call the great American dream.
So I want to talk a little bit about what Scripture t- says about this. And, and I'm going to take you to a passage of Scripture. In the Old Testament, nonetheless, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture to see what God had to say about this. And the thing that, the thing that it is, you know, when, we, when it comes to finances, God doesn't spell a lot of things out. There, there, there's just not a lot of do this and don't do this. There's some principles that we have to gather from all Scripture in order to gain a direction. But here's where I want to start out with this. I want to take you to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this is a long chapter, but I'm going to read the entire chapter. And there's a reason for this. I want you to see what God said to the children of Israel. And the children of Israel were a shadow, were a type of the church today. So I want to read the passage in Deuteronomy 28. See what God has to say about this whole thing. It starts out saying, if you fully obey the Lord your God. And I want to stop right there. Already there's a condition. Okay, already we see a condition. Whenever you see the word if, that's a conditional uh, statement. So God is saying, if you what? Fully obey. If you fully obey. And by the way, I wrote, uh, I copied this in my NIV, and for whatever reason, I brought my, the wrong Bible, or the one that I typically just use as my study, which is, which is NIV. I, I did copy it in the NIV. I'm not a big proponent for NIV, but I did this time because it does maybe put it in a little bit more everyday language, and I wanted you to read it with that in mind. If you fully obey the Lord your God and follow all his commandments I give to you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. And here's he's starting to give the blessings. He's, here's, he's telling us what's going to happen if we fully obey the Lord your God. Num- uh, verse 4, the fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flock. Your baskets and your kneading troughs will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on on oath, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his obedience to him, then all the people of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you an abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, in the crops of your ground, in the land he swore to you, your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounties, to send rain on your land in the season to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. Isn't that amazing? The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. If you pay attention 
to the commandments of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of these commandments I give you today to the right or to the left following the other gods and serving them. I want to stop right there and tell you I am not one who believes in the prosperity teaching that is prevalent today. I'm not here to say that if you, if you tithe a certain amount, God's going to bless you with a Cadillac. That's foolishness. I'm not a prosperity teacher. I am here to say that God operates under the law of sowing and reaping. There are, there are things that will follow certain choices, and, and, and there, are, there will be consequences that will follow. And I think that's what we're seeing here. It's not prosperity teaching here. God is just saying, you follow me, you follow my way. By the way, let's just pause right here and say that. I'm very concerned when I hear law and grace given as opposites. They're not opposites. <laughs> They're one. God said, Jesus said, I am the fulfillment. I have not come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it. And so laws, they're, they're God did not set out to make life miserable and, and, and cumbersome. That's not why he gave the law. He gave it for our benefit. There are, there are health reasons. There are financial reasons. There are all kinds of benefits that come along with the law that he gave to us. Am I glad that I don't have to follow all 600 plus laws that were established? Yes, I'm glad for that. And I'm glad that we, have, that we live in a day of grace. But the fact of the matter is, the things that he gave to us are for our benefit. And so there are still principles that we follow today that were given in the law that if we follow those principles, if we follow those things principally, they will be to our benefit. All right, let's go on. It says, however, now, the, now it changes. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow his commandments and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And here he begins listing the curses. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your baskets and your kneading troughs will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks, you will be cursed when you come in and you will, and, and, and when you, uh, you will, and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send you curses, confusion and rebuke and everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, the blight and mildew, which will plague you uh, until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. <clears throat> the Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies and you are destroyed until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at uh, them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. You will become a thing of horror to all kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and the wild animals 
and there will be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and festering sores and the itch from which you cannot be cured. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. You will be pledged to be married to a woman, but another will take her and rape her. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will eat none of it. Your donkeys will be forcibly taken from you and will not be returned. Your sheep will be given to your enemies, and no one will rescue them. Your sons and your daughters will be given to another nation, and you will wear out your eyes watching for them day after day, powerless to lift a hand. A people that you do not know will eat what your land and labor produce, and you will have nothing but cruel oppression all your days. The sights you will see will spread, uh, will drive you mad. The Lord will afflict your knees and legs with painful boils that cannot be cured, spreading from the soles of your feet to the top of your head. The Lord will drive you from the uh, and and the king you uh, uh, you set over you to a nation unknown to you and your ancestors. There, there you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror and a byword and an object of ridicule among the peoples where the Lord will drive you. You will be slow, sorry, you will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because your worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will overtake your trees and the crops of your land. The foreigners who reside among you will rise above your high, above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. They will lend to you, but you will not lend to them. They will be your, the head, but you will be the tail. Let me just pause right here and say, where we are at nationally is a, is a fulfillment of this prophecy. We cannot expect to allow the courts of this land to, to allow same-sex marriages to happen and keep on going the way that we've been going for the last 200-some years. It's just not going to happen. The law of sowing and reaping has been set into motion. We are now debtors to another nation that, if you know anything about them, is actually quite concerning to be under their thumb. I, I don't, I'm not here to be a doomsday preacher. I am here to be very honest with you. I think we're going to see some things that, that I'm concerned about. I really am. I'm concerned about it. I, I think our days of, of prosperity are numbered. And, and this is not normal, okay? This, and that's why I use the word up on top. 
Does scriptural normalize debt? No, this is not normal. What you're growing up in is not normal. It is to you, but it shouldn't be according to what God wanted for him, for his people. All these curses will come on you. They will pursue you. And you know what? Just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the rest of it. Read it. Go home and just read the rest of the chapter. There's, there's all kinds of things in there that are really quite concerning. And my hope and my prayer this morning is <laughs> that I will take you back to what is, what is normal. Um, it should not be normal to be in debt. I, I had an eye-opener. How long ago did you buy your first car, Austin? Eight, ten years ago? Eight years ago, probably. And we had been out of the country and had come back, and, and I hadn't bought a vehicle since we were back. And so we went shopping for a vehicle for Austin. I could not believe. I was shocked. They don't put the price of the car. They, they don't put the price of the tag. They don't put the tag, the price of the car. Hold on, I'm all mixed up. They don't put the price of the car on the windshield anymore. What do they put on it? Payments. They expect you to be in debt. That's the norm, how people are thinking today. It's normal to have car payments. The one place that we went to, we told him, we asked him, what's the price of the car? Well, he said, we only give it by, by payment. He said, no, no, I'm here, we're here to pay cash. And he said, well, we don't, give, we don't sell cars on cash. We were not able to buy a car on cash. The reason is, they will buy, they will sell a vehicle, maybe $100 over what they paid for it, and they make their money on the payments. Uh, young people, save up. <laughs> save up. Don't go into debt for a vehicle. If, if God hasn't supplied you the money to, to buy a vehicle, then just wait on God. My God will supply all your needs. And so let's just not get sucked into the vortex of what's around us in society. Is it wise to go into debt? And that's the question that was, well, I, that wasn't quite the question. The question that we had to answer was, is it wrong to go into debt? I used the word, is it wise to go into debt? Is it wise to go? Well, like I said, Scripture is, there. I, there's no Scripture that I could take you to to say that, yes, it is sin to go into debt, and yes, you should, you know, God said you should not go into debt. There's no Scripture that I can take you to that would say that it is wrong to go into debt. Scripture does weave a common theme about debt. And that is that it is very dangerous. And I just want to give you a couple of these scriptures, just in case you haven't thought about them. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. We talked about it in, in Sunday school today. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in, in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. 
fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not to fulfill it. Proverbs 11, verse 15 says, He who puts up surety for another will surely suffer. But whoever refuses to strike hands in pledge is safe. So he's just telling us it's, it's not wise to co-sign, to put up surety. That's what that word means, to put up surety for another. Verse uh, 18 of chapter 17, a man lacking in judgment strikes hands in a, in a pledge and puts up surety or security for his neighbor. So, again, does the Bible say that we can't do it? I can't tell you that it is sin to borrow money. What I can say is I'm not sure it's the wisest thing. Proverbs 22, 26 and 27, do not be a man who strikes hands in a pledge or puts up uh, security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. And then verse 13 in chapter 27, take the garment of one who puts up security for a stranger, hold it in pledge, if he does not, if he does it for a wayward woman or for a foreigner, I think we could put the word in there. In the Old Testament, the instruction that was given to the children of Israel was that they were able to lend to another Israelite. But there was a limit of how long that person could hold the other person in debt. How long was it? Seven years. Every seven years, the, the one that had loaned the money or whatever it was that loaned him had to reconcile and say, you know what, I forgive you the debt. So the longest someone could be in debt was seven years. Now, unless it was someone outside of the Israelite camp. And I wonder if God gave that as a, as a, uh, as a principle that we could, uh, that we could follow. You know, when you, when you borrow money and put it on 30-year payments, you are, most of the time, you are doubling what you, the, the original pur- uh, purchase. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd how much, how much you pay into in- interest. And so is that the wisest use of your money? In this discussion, I think we need to balance all Scripture with all scripture. And that's what I want to do this morning. Most of the time when I hear people talking about uh, financial, especially concerning debt, they come hard on one side or another. I would like to balance the two. (coughs) Romans chapter 13, verse 8, this is the verse that is often used. It says, let no debt remain outstanding except the the continuing debt of love uh, one to another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. That's the New King James, the, the King James Version says it this way, probably know it a little bit better this way, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And so some people come down and say, Bible says owe no man anything. That means there should, be ne- there should never be debt. Well, how do you reconcile this passage of Scripture? 
in Matthew chapter 5, verse 42, when Jesus says, give to him who asks you, and do not turn away from one who, who wants to borrow from you. So if Jesus told us to, to, to lend to someone who wants to borrow, um, why would he have said that then? Uh, so I, I just brought these two verses out to show the difference that I'm not sure that I can say that, that well, I know I can't. I, I can't say that all borrowing is wrong. There are certain principles that I would challenge you, though, with when you're thinking about this. The word borrow in this verse means to loan on interest reflexively to borrow. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 and 28 also says this, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it. When it is in your power to act, do not say to your neighbor, Come back later, I'll give it to you tomorrow. So I, I, I just think that there are times that Possibly there are times that, that, that borrowing may be okay. But I think, I think we need to balance all Scripture with all Scripture. And that's where we want to go. Five guiding questions. If you come to the place where you sense like you need to borrow money, I would want you to filter these five questions before you move forward with a loan. First question that I would want you to ask is, will, I should have made it personal, will my debt make me a slave to the wrong thing? Will my debt make me a slave to the wrong thing? <laughs> Proverbs 28 verse 7 says, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Two words there. The word borrower, borrower is, means to, to be a bondman. The word servant is literally the word slave. So it says that you will become a slave to the one from whom you borrow. I want you to compare that verse to Romans chapter 6, verse 18 and verse 28, uh, 22, where it says, You have been set free from sin and it becomes slave to righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slave to God, slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is life eternal, or eternal life. The question that I would want you to ask yourself is, if I borrow, will, I, will that pose... Will that distract you from your current position? If you are free, if you are a slave to Christ, will your debt put you back to slavery under the person from whom you are borrowing? And that's why Jesus said you can't be, you can't have two masters. Uh, it'll be one or the other. So will my debt enslave me? That's a good question to ask. Will my debt enslave me? The second question I would ask, or, ask, or have you ask, is, <laughs> is the potential debt generated by a lack of contentment? And I think that's something that's very important for us to understand. It is so easy to borrow 
or to buy something on impulse. And many times, it is generated by a lack of contentment. Is this something that I truly need? A couple verses that I'd just like to put before you. First, or 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. This is the, this is the passage where Paul is, is writing to the Corinthians <coughs> and is appealing for money for the church of Jerusalem. But he's talking about himself, and he's just saying that, you know, he, he, I've faced a lot of things. And he, he concludes with saying, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul had, I think he had come to the place of understanding what true contentment really is. Hey, he didn't have a whole lot. That's what he's saying. Poor, though rich. I don't have a lot of money, but I'm rich in many other ways. I don't have a lot to give, yet I have so much. Uh, and and that's, the, that's what contentment will do. First uh, Timothy 6, verse 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And that's a good thing to put in front of us. It's a good thing for me to put in front of myself. You know, I can get distracted by the wants of life. And, uh, and, and before I know it, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting things that I can do without. Disciplining myself to do without. Luke one, uh, 12, verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so I would just put some of these verses, and there's many other verses in Scripture that talk about contentment and the need for contentment. And I think it would do us well to check our motives of what is causing me to go into debt. Am I okay without it? Okay, second, the third thing, third question. Can you meet your obligation? Now, none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, there's always the unknown. However, let's take, for instance, Let's take the purchase of a house, for instance. If you pay, I would say probably anywhere between $500 and $800 going rate for an average size house. Am I correct on that? Some of you landlords that found landowners, I don't know. Let's say, let's, let's make that five, five to $800 of rent. You're going to pay that every day or every month or whatever the agreement is, maybe sometimes once a week or whatever it is, but let's say monthly. Every month you're going to pay that. If your payments are equal to what you would pay in rent, maybe we could justify a payment for a house. However, conditional, conditional, not for 30 years. What about, the, what about the principles that God put out there for the Israelites? You know, can we do it in seven years? Um, it's just something to think about. We already looked at, no, this is uh, one of them. Psalm 37, verse 21. The wicked borrow and does not repay, but the righteous give generously. God in the New Testament instructs us over and over and over 
I can't, again, I, coming back to the question on tithing, I can't take you to any verse in the New Testament that says you need to tithe. But I can take you to a lot of verses that talk about you being a servant and you being a giver and you being a generous giver. And that's what God wants from us. Romans 13.8, let no debt remain. We looked at that verse already. We looked at the one in Ecclesiastes. Better not to vow than to make a vow and not be able to fulfill it. I think we have a moral obligation to pay any kind of debt that we've made an agreement to pay back. I, I, I just have, and I've, I'm seeing this probably maybe out on a limb. I don't know, but I just I want to be very careful but I, I, would, I would have, I have trouble with Christians defaulting into bankruptcy. I, I, just have a, I just have a problem with that. I think it ruins the reputation of God. And I just think as Christians, we need to be very careful that we don't put ourselves in a position uh, that that would be the case. Will it affect? Um... I think that you're supposed to be out of there. Will it affect God's call to give generously? And uh, again, there's many passages of Scripture in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, 7. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 8, 12. For it is the willing, for it is the willingness, boy, for if the willingness is there, sorry, uh, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. I just think that if we put ourselves in a position we are not able to be generous givers, then I think we're competing with what God wants from us as Christians. So I think a good question to ask was, will it affect? my generous giving, my generosity. And then I think the last question that I would just challenge you to, to ask yourself is, have I laid aside this thing that I think I need or want and really sought God for, uh, for, for direction in this, in this purchase? It's hard for us to separate our desires from from life, and, and it's hard to set that aside. But if we can, I challenge you to say, you know what, I'm willing not to purchase it. I'm willing to purchase it if this is what you want, God. But I'm going to set that aside. I truly want to hear from you. I lay all my desires to the side, and you show me. I think God will show you. I think he'll show you. I think God desires to give us direction in life. And so I know I've talked to the first two rows a lot this morning, and I did that intentionally because you're living in a time when normal is death. But according to God, I just don't think that's normal. And I would just challenge you to be very, to make wise financial decisions because it affects not only our, our lifestyle, but it affects our spiritual life, our responses. You know, when we're, when, when, when we're, obligated and our obligations are so great that you know we need to work the second job and we we miss you know 
church functions because we got to keep working to make ends meet. I think we're heading down the wrong road. God has challenged you to make wise financial decisions and to buck the tide of what we're seeing today. Let's pray, and then I'm going to have Keith close. Thank you, Father, for this day and for your kindness and goodness. Thank you for each of the uh, children and the youth that are here today. And we know that uh, we, we are living in a time when we're seeing the drama unfold in front of us of, of a people that have walked away from you and hearts are grieved to see what this is doing. And Lord, we, we just we stand against that. And we stand against it for our youth here today and the youth across this, this country, Lord. And we would just pray that you would rise, uh, raise up a, a mighty army of, of youth who are, who are Daniel, modern-day Daniels and Josephs, who, who stand for truth in the midst of so much, um, so many false things. And uh, just give them courage to make wise choices in life. Commit ourselves, direct us, and keep us. And we ask that you would uh, uh, watch over us as we leave from here. We commit ourselves to you in your name we pray. Amen.